begin with a prayer. This is by Lancelot Andrews. Thou with thine own mouth hast told us that at midnight the bridegroom shall come. Grant that the cry, the bridegroom cometh, may sound evermore in our ears, so that we be never unprepared to meet him, or forgetful of the souls for whom he died, for whom we watch and pray. And save us, O Lord. Amen. Psalm 122 from the Coverdale Psalter. I was glad when they said to me, we will go into the house of the Lord. Uh, so, uh, so we pick up where we left off last week, which is, is um, uh, it's, it's the 1550s, and Thomas Cranmer is dead to begin with, uh, to riff off of Dickens for a second. Um, and Cranmer was dead, and so it would appear was the prayer book. Uh, Queen Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, Queen Mary the First, rather, uh, had restored uh, Roman Catholicism to England, and the rights of the recent years were gone. However, uh, Mary's reign was short. Uh, she, she became ill of health in multiple ways, and, uh, and so her reign did not last that much longer than her half-brother's. <laughs> uh, uh, when she died of an illness, uh, probably the flu, on November 17th, 1558, she was succeeded by her half-sister Elizabeth. Mary didn't want that to happen, by the way, but, you know. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, like Edward before her, was Protestant. Uh, however, Elizabeth had picked up on the huge divides within the English people. Even within the people who would have proudly called themselves Protestant, there were many differences. And there had been since Cranmer was alive. There were differences on, okay, so we're Protestant now. Uh, should we wear vestments or not? And you've heard a little bit about the divides of how exactly are we understanding the Eucharist? All of these things were, were bouncing around. No one could come to, to, uh, to agreement on a lot of things. So... Elizabeth realized she had several issues on her hand. Uh, 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 all, of these, all of these factions. So, uh, she came to power. The Act of Supremacy of 1558 uh, reestablished the Church of England's independence from Rome. Uh, 
Parliament conferred on Elizabeth the title of Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Uh, the act also reintroduced the Book of Common Prayer uh, uh, as, as the guide for liturgical uh, services of the church. And some modifications were made to appeal uh, to, to Catholics and Lutherans, instead of, including giving uh, more individual latitude concerning beliefs in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, the 1552 Book of Common Prayer had what's called the Black Rubric, which explicitly denied the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and that was removed from the Holy Communion Rite in the 1559 version, much to the dismay of Puritans. And as I briefly mentioned As I briefly mentioned last week, um, the phrase, the body of Christ which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul into ever, unto everlasting life, was restored uh, to the administration of communion in the 1559 prayer book, which, uh, having that combined with keeping... Uh, uh, take this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and... And uh, uh, Christ died for the. Uh, uh, okay, so it's so long that a guy who has been a priest for only a year can't remember it yet. <laughs> sure, we'll say that. Um. Uh, permission was also given to use traditional priestly vestments. In 1571, uh, the Convocation of Canterbury and York adopted the 39 Articles of Religion as a confessional statement for the church. And a book of homilies was issued outlining the church's reformed theology in greater detail. Now, this sort of clarified a little bit uh, the issue around the Eucharist. Uh, what is not as explicit in the 59 prayer book, they still felt a need to put a couple of guardrails on. And that's, that's what the 39 articles serve as, is you know, our Anglican beliefs tend to be much, broad, much more broad uh, and less defined in some ways than a lot of other denominations. Think Presbyterians. Very to the point. Um, but we still do have the 39 articles to put those guardrails onto to what we say we believe, and that's, they're what we subscribe to today as a church affiliated with the Anglican Church in North America, and through that, through GAFCON, we're actually bound to these. So here is what the 39 articles say about the Lord's Supper. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves to one another, but rather is a sacrament of our redemption 
by Christ's death. Insomuch that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ. And likewise, the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation, or the change of the substance of bread and wine in the supper of the Lord, cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain word of Scripture. Overthroweth the nature of a sacrament, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after a heavenly and spiritual manner. And the means whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. The, the Elizabethan settlement established a Church of England that was, that was far too Protestant for Catholics and too Catholic for, well, the Puritans. However, for everyone else, by managing to strike a middle way of via media, it set forth a path focused on the things that most Christians have in common. The, the Elizabethan settlement refers to a series of religious and political compromises implemented during, during the reign of Elizabeth I of England. It aimed to establish a stable religious framework in England after the turbulent years of religious conflict during the reign of Elizabeth's predecessors. The core issues addressed by the Elizabethan settlement include <clears throat> religious <laughs> compromise. So here we are again, the Via Media, which sought a middle way or uh, between the extreme Catholicism of Mary's reign and radical Protestantism uh, embodied by, say, the Puritans. The goal was to create a religious settlement that could appeal to a broad spectrum of the population. The 39 Articles, uh, uh, which were formulated in uh, 1563, they were finalized again a few years later, they outlined the doctrines and practices of the Church of England. They emphasized, their, the emphasis was on retaining traditional rituals and ceremonies while embracing uh, robust Protestant theology. Royal supremacy. Yes, this is because <laughs> we, we like this uh, in America today, but it was part of it. Um, the Elizabethan settlement maintained the monarch's supremacy over the Church of England. This meant that the queen, rather than the pope, was the supreme authority in ecclesiastical matters. It was a continuation of the break with Rome initiated by Henry VIII. <clears throat> the Uniformity Acts. Do, 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 do. Uh, 
the Act of Uniformity in 1559 established the form of worship in the Church of England. It prescribed the use of the Book of Common Prayer and required clergy to conform to its rites and it imposed penalties on those who did not conform to the established religious practices. This aimed to create religious unity within the realm. Then... Huh? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, and the toleration with limits. With the Elizabethan settlement, uh, while it allowed some degree of religious toleration for moderate Catholics and Puritans, there were limits. Uh, uh, fines were imposed on Catholics who refused to attend the Anglican services. Puritans faced persecution if they challenged the established order to aggressively, so you can't be in the streets preaching against uh, preaching against the Church of England, etc. Uh, economic stability uh, was another aspect. It contributed to economic stability by reducing religious tensions. The queen wanted to avoid the religious conflicts because uh, uh, it really wasn't good for society. Uh, and then national identity. The settlement played a role in defining a distinct English identity separate from continental influences, became a symbol for English national identity and independence from other religious authorities. So, we'll talk about what actually was changed in the 1559 prayer book. We've already mentioned a couple of things. But Elizabeth's own sympathies, she kind of liked a lot of the ceremony and everything. And so she was more sympathetic to the relatively traditionalist 1549 prayer book. Uh, she was evangelical in her theology, but she was moderate. And she honestly liked the beauty of the situation. But her advisors convinced her that the 1552 book was the, mo was the more politically apt choice at the time. Uh, however, some reversions to the earlier text could be implemented at her insistence. <clears throat> so again, the, uh, the black rubric, which Cranmer didn't particularly like putting in there and had grudgingly written, was deleted. Uh, more ambiguous language uh, from the 1549 rite was restored. This allowed worshipers to believe that Christ was in some way, not specifically defined, truly present in the bread and wine. This was crucial to the traditional, accept, traditional acceptance of the rite, both at the moment and for centuries of Anglican history to come. Uh, the Elizabethan prayer book also deletes the litany's reference to the detestable enormities of the Pope. <laughs> 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 
Thanks to Elizabeth's 45-year reign, the 59 prayer book did more than any other to consolidate and define distinct Anglican worship. Uh, The writer Alan Jacobs uh, says, thanks to the relative stability of the Elizabethan era, the Book of Common Prayer was given decades to settle into people's lives, to replace the old rites and practices. And Yama Duffy says, Cranmer's somberly magnificent prose, read week by week, entered and possessed their minds and became the fabric of their prayer, the utterance of their most solemn and their most vulnerable moments. We'll get into that a little bit later when we start walking through the prayer book. But the consistent use of it became people's language. It became the language not just as it affected their speech as they went about their day, but those prayers get deep within you. Uh, and I'll have a story about that when we get to one of our, one of our rites. Now, in 1604, uh, uh, Elizabeth had died, and James I had had become not just king of Scotland, which he already was. He was James VI of Scotland, but he was now James I of England. And he called what is known as the Hampton Court Conference. Uh, The most famous thing to come out of this conference, where he gathered a bunch of, of Anglican bishops as well as a bunch of Puritans and Presbyterians, and he kind of got everyone together. There was one thing they could agree on. They wanted a new Bible to be read in all the churches uh, to replace all the various number of them that had at this point come before And so that is where, most notably, the King James Bible was commissioned. (laughs) But in addition, small edits were made to the prayer book. Chiefly, at this point, uh, the prayer prayer for the royal family was inserted at the end of the litany, uh, as were six prayers of thanksgiving. For this edition, the lessons from the Apocrypha were removed. They were restored in the next edition. A subtitle of, or remission of sins, was added to the title of absolution. Or, le- pardon. So. What was the year that the King James Bible was commissioned? So it was commissioned in 1604, and it was published in 1611. So, uh, so... The prayer book came before the King James. Yeah, the prayer book came before the King James Bible. So it was all Latin before that. There were no English versions of the Bible. No, there there were several. Uh, There there was uh, there was uh, Tyndall's version of the New Testament and uh, the Pentateuch uh, that was eventually completed by a guy named Miles Coverdale, who who completed the Bible. Most of that was from. Both much of his work was from Latin, 
uh, to sort of finish it out. Uh, that was updated several times over the years, most notably as the Great Bible. But um, finally, there was a translation called the Bishop's Bible, uh, which built on Coverdale's work but went back to the original sources. But it had horrid English. And so, and so they finally decided, hey, we, we need to fix this. Uh, we need to have an English Bible that reads well. And, and so in 1604, they decided, okay, we're going to uh, commission one Bible to be used throughout the land. And so that's how the King James came about. Uh, uh, I go into a little bit more detail about uh, that in the uh, Two, two classes ago. Um, yes? So which Bible was used in the original prayer book? The original prayer books used the Great Bible, which is the Bible that, that used the portions that Tyndall had completed and f- filled out the rest of it by Miles Coverdale. So that, that's what the, the previous versions of the prayer book used. Um, and then... Uh, and so from 1604, well, the 1604 still used that one because the King James had not been completed yet. And so from the uh, 1662 prayer book onward, which is still the official prayer book, it uses the King James except for the Psalms, which are uh, Coverdale's translation. Anyhow, uh, the... Uh, so, um, the requirement that baptism be performed by lawful ministers was included. Not everyone can just go about baptizing people. Um, and a final section of the catechism was penned by the Dean of St. Paul's, John Overall. So, that was about it for a while. Of course, people being people... Um, they became dissatisfied, as any of you know, English history became dissatisfied with the monarchy and the Church of England. Uh, and so, uh, under pressure from uh, a highly dissatisfied public, um, the prayer book was outlawed on January 4th, 1645. Uh, the church itself became Presbyterian. Um, and after several years of being in and out of imprisonment, King Charles I was executed on January 4th, 1649, ex- uh, exactly four years after the prayer book had been outlawed. In the words of Alan Jacobs, unlike Charles, the prayer book survived. Royalist Anglicans took their prayer books with them to France and continued praying the, uh, the now classic liturgies in exile. In uh, 1662, two years after the monarchy was restored, a new edition of the prayer book was printed. Uh, so, so, 1662. 
after a conference of 12 bishops and several representative Presbyterians met and offered recommendations. The only major win for the Presbyterians was the change of the readings to the King James Version of the Bible, which replaced uh, the readings from the Great Bible uh, from the previous editions. However, Co uh, Miles Coverdale's Psalter was kept, uh, and while it, was, it had been used in services for well over a century, it was actually included within the, uh, the actual corpus, the actual codex, of the prayer book for the first time. At this point in time, there had already been a century of music being set to uh, being set to Coverdale's Psalter. Uh, it's beautiful the amount of music that exists out there based on Coverdale's Psalter. It was it was a real intentional effort by the Elizabethan church, including by Elizabeth herself, to get, uh, to get the psalms set to music. And of course, they're being set to, the psalms that are being set to music are Coverdale's. And so that's why it continued to be used, rather than the King James Bible, in the prayer book, and it's why in our prayer book, spoilers, we still have the Coverdale Psalter just in very, very slightly updated language. They even paid attention to, to keeping the same cadence so that we could use all of this music for the Psalms that have been written for five centuries. Back to 1662, though. Um, work on the new prayer book had begun in November 1661. They wrapped up their work December 18th, so this was really fast. The king gave his assent to it on May 19th, 1662. And a new act of uniformity made the new prayer book the law of the land on St. Bartholomew's Day, August 24th, 1662. Ultimately, over 600 alterations, almost all of them very minor, were made. From the preface, largely written by Robert Sanderson, the Bishop of Lincoln, it says... We are fully persuaded in our judgments, and we here profess it to the world that the book, as it stood before established law, doth not contain in it anything contrary to the word of God or to sound doctrine, or which a godly man may not with good conscience use and submit unto. So, basically saying... The 1559 and 1604 prayer books that people were caring about. There's nothing wrong with them. Uh, and so 
basically some general kinds of changes were made as an update. Those for the better direction of them that are to officiate in any part of divine service. Primarily, clarification of the rubrics. How we do the things we do up here. It was a little bit more specific on some of that. Second, for the proper expressing of some words or phrases of ancient usage in terms more suitable to the language of the present times. So a lot of it was simply making things a little clearer. The prayer book had been around for over a century at this point. This was mainly to pacify Puritans for the most part. However, some changes the Puritans did not like, uh, especially the efficient officiant at Holy Communion being called priest rather than minister. Third, a more perfect rendering of such portions of Scripture as are inserted in the liturgy. Basically, this is changing to the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, Readings from the Apocrypha were also restored to the lectionary. And finally, prayers for particular occasions and for for the monarchy were added. Great things that we have in the back here. Well, the monarchy thing is not in here. Um, The preface by Sanderson emphasized the via media aspect uh, that had existed in Anglicanism in some ways since the early days, but which had, of course, risen to the fore during the Elizabethan settlement and had been and had become a hallmark of the Anglican tradition ever since. The preface reads, It has been the wisdom of the Church of England ever since the first compiling of her public <coughs> liturgy to keep the means to keep the mean between the two extremes, of too much stiffness in refusing and of too much easiness in admitting any variation from it. Finally, a brief word today about something that was happening uh, in Scotland at the time, but which would not be finished until a century later. And I bring this up because it affects us. Now, of course, you know, most of Scotland uh, was Church of Scotland, which was Presbyterian and everything. But there was an Anglican or an Episcopal segment of Scotland. And they developed their own version of the rites. Building on work begun in 1637, Alternative liturgies for the Episcopal Church of Scotland reflected the more high church preferences of the Scottish church. They, they liked the ceremony and, the, and, uh, and some of the more traditional theology. And so uh, they often reverted to the 1549 liturgies. Uh, other changes were made as well. Uh, some informal changes were made to the order of various parts of the services, 
The Gloria is in a different area, for instance, than it is in the English church. Uh, Second, an epiclesis, or the invoking of the Holy Spirit, was inserted, as were words indicating a sacrificial intent to the Eucharist, clear in the words, We, thy humble servants, do celebrate and make before thy divine majesty with with these thy holy gifts, which we now offer unto thee, the memorial thy Son hath commanded us to make. Sound familiar? In 1789, uh, the 1764 Scottish liturgies became the basis for the prayer for the prayer book of the Episcopal Church in the United States, and have continued to shape every American prayer book since. And those American prayer books, including ours, is what we'll get into next time. Questions? Uh, Reverse. You said the 1662 version that the uh, change from the Great Bible to King James and the Victory of the Presbyterians, why would that be? So the Presbyterians have been have been very dissatisfied with, with what was called the Bishop's Bible. Uh, uh, and everyone was uh, dissatisfied with the Great Bible, even though it had been used for decades at this point because the Bishop's, because the Great Bible, rather, um, was mostly based on Latin. The, the New Testament was pretty good. That was Tyndall's work. Part of the Old Testament was Tyndall's work. Those were from the original languages. But the great bulk of the great Bible uh, was rendered from Latin. It was very beautiful, but as far as accuracy goes, left a bit to be desired because it wasn't translated from the original languages. And so the Presbyterians really wanted that. Um, and... Their original suggestion of what was called the Geneva Bible was absolutely shut down. Uh, the Geneva Bible had been translated uh, by, by English Protestants in exile and was in some ways the first study Bible. However, its notes were very anti, uh, anti-monarchy. So the king shut that down. <laughs> and, and so the best compromise between the Presbyterians and the, uh, the more Episcopal Anglicans was the King James Bible, which they had both worked on together. That was part of King James' scheming, is to get the best scholars from the Presbyterians and from the, from the Episcopal uh, sections of the church together to work on this Bible to keep each other in check. You had Yeah, I, um, you mentioned earlier on in the beginning that they were trying to balance the sort of, you said, quote, extreme Catholicism versus certain sides of yeah. engagement. 
was it actually extreme Catholicism, or was there, I mean, was there an aspect to it that was more extreme than today's Catholicism? You know, honestly, they, they say extreme, but, you know, obviously the big, you know, the crux of the issue is, you know, who, who is your uh, supreme authority or whatever. And, and so if, if the Catholics, if, if they couldn't be convinced to go to an Anglican church, that's, that's the point at which it was sort of a break at at that point. So, in other words, compromise. Come to our church even though you don't believe in it. Uh, so, I wouldn't consider that extreme, but... Liturgically, you know, ob- obviously, true Catholics of that period of time would have preferred the Latin Mass. Uh, how- however, the more high church Anglicans, the-, the Anglicans who just sort of leaned that that more traditional direction and really liked the, the liturgy being as close to Catholic as possible, the English, uh, you know, those are the ones that they were really trying to sway to, to get to, okay, let's come together on some of this stuff. Uh, oh, uh, I'll do Jason first. Then, okay. Do you have a name, do you have any names of the Presbyterians? Who were present at 1662 consultation? I can get those. Uh, I don't have them off the top of my head. Bob. Yeah. Right, Robert, was it the yeah. Eucharist, uh, since they believed in, in total transubstantiation, wasn't that a dividing? Uh, yeah, yeah. Which they left a bit of room, you know, in, in this sort of re, re-rendering to, to give more of a more room for a span of belief there. However, as, as you see in, uh, in 39 articles, there's still ultimately, you can't be the far end over here and you can't be the far end over here. So, so transubstantiation is off the table, but real presence in some form is not off the table. So they were trying to, to say, okay, if, if you shift, you know, if you allow just a little bit more room this this way, okay, we can be together. But you can't be all the way over here. And just like to the Puritans, they're basically saying, okay, you can't be that far over there either. But if you come a little this this way, I think we can make it work. It never fully worked. <laughs> uh, I was like, uh, sh- shame. When, when you said we're bound to the 39 hours, are we bound to the ones that make us loyal to the crown? <laughs> or, or, or no. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the 39 articles, as, uh, as I said, I need to revisit the 39 articles, but, uh, but the, the way the 39 ar- articles are formulated nowadays does, don't require us to... to uh, Bow to the crown. Bob. Uh, I mean, we jumping ahead a few weeks. Uh, where does the 2019 stand in the middle of? Stand in the middle of? Well, okay. we're talking about uh, Anglicanism yeah. being a midpoint yeah. between 
either extreme, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah. So my question is, which two uh, which, systems which, which, or, which, or sure. theologies does the 2019 book stand between? Sure, sure. I would say as far as influences go, uh, we, would, we would stand very much with, with Cranmer in, in the sort of middle of where, where he would have seen Lutheranism and Presbyterianism in, in that time, uh, uh, the sort of Reformed and Lutheran versions of Protestantism. As far as other things go, ceremonially, both high church Anglicans, the more you know, formal, uh, and low church, sort of evangelical Anglicans, worked on our prayer book. They, they came together and you know, had, had the discussions, had the, you know, had, had the uh, in-house fights uh, uh, for about 10 years saying, okay, this is what we can agree on. This, this is what goes back to uh, our earliest sources as well as, as looking at things that have happened over the last several centuries, uh, the, the history of where we got our prayer books, so that Scottish tradition as well, and, and came, came to a compromise. But what they really did, and we'll get into this next session, is ultimately measure everything just as Cranmer did by how much it aligned with Scripture. So there's less innovation than there was in the 79 prayer book. But, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that more next so time. So it's within Anglicanism that the 2019 stands between? With, with Is that the, the way I understand what Yeah, within... Basically, the Anglican Church in North America. Yeah. Uh, so, so there are things that all of the Anglican Church in North America holds to. You know, we hold to the Jerusalem Declar Declaration. We hold to the Thirty Nine Articles. We have a very high view of Scripture and everything. And so, then, you know, based on that, so that's already within the scope. Then you've you've got the more high church Anglicans and low church Anglicans kind of coming together to, to find, okay, here's, here's where we feel comfortable with the rights going at this point. Uh, so there's still the priority of Scripture, the priority of the 39 Articles, the seeing of the 1662 prayer book as the standard for Anglicans worldwide, uh, and then working from that. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities with the 1928 prayer prayer book. Uh, it's 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 longer than the 28 prayer book and in more contemporary language, but theologically, uh, there's a lot you would recognize between the rites. Uh, right. uh, I have two questions. Give us a quick history lesson about Charles the First, which was it was killed. But more importantly, that's mostly a joke. I don't. I don't. I can look that up. Yeah. The missal, the, the the Roman Catholics. When did their start? When did that system start coming along? I. Any ideas? I. 
very vague. I'd have I'd have to look that up. I can probably go into that a little bit more next time. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, I'll take this one from Shane and then we'll wrap up. Go if you need to. Huh? Oh! <laughs> People are not happy with changes. Yes. Anyhow. All right. Thank you, guys.